ask you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me, if you would, to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 7 and studying in particular uh, the message of the Lord Jesus, the risen Christ, to the church of Ephesus. So when you have that, I'd ask you to stand with me if you're able, out of respect for God's Word, and I will read this for us. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Write to the angel of the church in Ephesus, thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name and have not grown weary, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet, you do have this. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is God's word for us this morning. Please be seated. What is the most devastating thing that can happen to a church? So just this past week, Brian Houston resigned as the global pastor of Hillsong Church uh, because of allegations of sexual impropriety. And Houston is just one of many pastors who have fallen into moral sin. And the result of that for a church is always difficult, right? There's hurt. Uh, there's frustration, there's confusion that sets in among the people that are left behind, really left in the wake. And in cases of, of moral failure, it's very, very difficult for a church. It's oftentimes difficult for a church to, to carry on and continue. You know, but as bad as a pastor's moral failure is, it's not the worst thing that can happen to a church. What about worldliness? You know, many churches in our day, we kind of look at the glitz and the glamour of Hollywood and the music industry, and many churches will try to kind of model their, surface, their services off of what they see. There's a desire that the show would be bright, that it would be entertaining, that it would be attractive to the masses, and so they focus on outward appearance, uh, and they focus on seeing numerical growth, but often the numerical growth is no more healthy than the growth of cancer in a body. And so over time, and it does take time, but over time, if left unchecked, worldliness can kill a church, will kill a church. But as serious as worldliness is, it's not the most devastating thing that can happen to a church. What about gossip? Right? Sometimes we make excuses for gossip. Sometimes we're confused about whether or not we are gossiping. But gossip is one of the deadliest threats that can happen to a church. Why? Because the rumor mill gets started and people get divided from one another, and more and more people join signs, and there becomes this distrust that kind of sweeps across the congregation, and people don't know who they can trust anymore, and people are angry and bitter, and over time, if left unchecked, if those who are gossiping aren't disciplined for their sin, a church will be destroyed. It's very serious. But even gossip isn't the most devastating thing that can happen to the life of a church. Our passage actually shows us what is the most devastating thing that can happen to a church? And it's that that church would lose its first love for the Lord Jesus and for one another. 
Now, losing its first love is the kind of thing that can cause the Lord Jesus to, to speak to a church that's healthy in almost every way and say, if it doesn't repent, he's going to come and he's going to just shut it down. He takes it that seriously. And here's the, here's the thing. Losing, losing his first love is something that can happen to any church. It can happen to Christ Fellowship Church of Williamsburg. And so as we think about this passage this morning, we really need to listen to what the Lord Jesus says to us uh, in this passage. We need to assess our own hearts and our own church and ask God to, to help us um, think about this passage rightly and think about our own hearts towards the Lord. Because as we'll say, it's not just something that can happen to a church. Losing our first love is something that can happen to us as individual Christians as well. So let's pray that God would speak to us as we look at this letter this morning. So we're continuing our study in the book of Revelation. Last week, we looked at chapter 1, verses 9 to 20. We saw this picture of this uh, exalted Christ. So the Lord Jesus, he is glorious. Uh, we see his glory so clearly in those verses, and we thought about the fact that he's glorious. We're reminded that Jesus cares for his own. We're reminded that Jesus is life. He's the source of life, indeed, eternal life now and forever for all who trust in him. And this morning, we're going to be looking now at, at chapters 2 and 3. We're really going to be beginning our study of chapters 2 and 3, where the exalted Lord Jesus begins to speak to seven churches, seven actual churches, seven real churches, just like our church. This is the churches at Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, he gives these churches messages, really prophetic messages for their particular church, uh, calling them to listen to him. And they follow a standard format. So as we go through these churches in coming week, I want you just to kind of be aware of the format that the Lord Jesus uses in each one of these messages. First, the letter is prefaced with a charge to write to the angel of that specific church. And then the Lord Jesus, he describes himself, and he describes himself using uh, some of the imagery taken from chapter 1 in the glorious vision that we studied last time that we were together and then really the body of the letter, it, can, it contains commendations or praise for the way that the particular local church is following Jesus. But in the case of five of these churches, it also includes corrections for ways that the, the churches were failing to follow the Lord Jesus. And then at the close of each letter, there's an exhortation to hear. It's a familiar exhortation that you hear over and over in the Gospels. This is the Lord Jesus speaking again, that we would hear, that we would listen. And then there's a promise to those who conquer. And so each each letter has so much in it, so much truth in it, uh, and there's so much for us to take away. Now, as we said, these are actual churches that the Lord Jesus was addressing. Flesh and blood, just like this church, Christ Fellowship Church of Williamsburg, some of them were probably similar size, maybe even smaller than Christ Fellowship Church of Williamsburg. We're not entirely sure, but we know, do know that the Lord Jesus knew them. Uh, he knew everything about them. He loved them, and he wanted to minister to them. And, of course, these, these churches, we believe that the number seven is used because uh, we should understand that these churches are really symbolic in a lot of ways of the kinds of churches that you'll see in every age. So churches in every age will struggle with some of the same sin struggles that these churches struggle with, and churches in every age will, by God's grace, be strong and will be strengthened in the way that the Lord Jesus commends these churches for and so, as we study these letters, we should really be assessing, we should be assessing Christ Fellowship Church of Williamsburg, and we should be assessing our own hearts about our own relationship with the Lord Jesus. As verse 7 says, we must listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, we're going to begin, of course, by looking at the church in Ephesus. We just read that 
letter a second ago. We're going to do that using three points. If you're taking notes, it'll be three points this morning from Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. First, we're going to see the, the Lord's commendation. We're going to see that in verses 1 to 3, and then in verse 6 as well. And then we're going to see the Lord's correction. We're going to see that in verses 4 and 5. And then we're going to see the Lord's promise as we study verse 7 together. So let's look at that first point together, the Lord's commendation. Look first at verse 1. Write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The first thing you see here is a command. It's a command, write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Now, as we mentioned last time, commentators differ as to what they think that word angel refers to. Uh, Some commentators believe it refers to kind of maybe the lead pastor or lead elder over the local church. Uh, Some commentators think that it it speaks of messengers who had come to John, and John was to give them the letter to take back to the church. So these would be human messengers carrying the letter back. Some believe it actually refers to an angel, an angel who had particular responsibility kind of for that local church. And because the word angel in Revelation usually means angel, I personally think that's most likely. But whether it's an actual angel that John is uh, referring to or that the Lord Jesus is addressing or a human representative of the church, it's important for us to understand that this message, these verses that we're going to study together this morning, is for the church of Ephesus as a whole. It's for everyone. Everyone in the church of Ephesus needed to hear what the Lord Jesus would say to them. And then in the second part of verse 1, Jesus describes himself. And of course, he uses again the imagery from chapter 1. He says, Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Again, the lampstands speak of the churches themselves. Notice Jesus is in the midst of the churches. It shows that he cares for them, that he knows them, that he's not far away from them and unconcerned, but instead he's with them and he's intimately acquainted with each of these churches. Indeed, it shows that Jesus himself is the source of life for these churches. But in particular, Jesus uses this description of himself to let the church of Ephesus know that he's acquainted with them, that he's not far from them, uh, that he knows them intimately. Indeed, he's acquainted with their works. For its part, the church of Ephesus was located in the city of Ephesus. It's one of the most prominent cities in the Roman province of Asia. Uh, It was a city that was a free city in Roman society, which meant that it had the right of self-government, right? It was so loyal to Rome that Rome could trust it to kind of manage its own affairs. It was also uh, a major port. There was a major port there, and so there was a lot of sea commerce that would come into Ephesus. And it was also located on three different trade routes. And so, you know, merchandise would come in, and merchandise would go out, and merchandise would come and would go out. Uh, It was a major hub It was a major economic powerhouse in its day. It was called the Market of Asia. But most especially, Ephesus was known for its worship of the goddess Artemis, or Diana. This was a pagan city. The Temple of Artemis was located in Ephesus. It was one of the seven seven wonders of the ancient world. It was the home to thousands of prostitutes, whose job was to facilitate the worship of the goddess Artemis. And so the worship of Artemis was characterized by gross sexual immorality and by idolatry. And here's the thing, it was a major force in the life of the city. In many ways, it was at the very core of the culture of this city of Ephesus. But here's good news. You see, the gospel came to Ephesus. 
Aquila and Priscilla, they move there. You see that in chapter 18 of Acts. And then just shortly after that, the Apostle Paul himself comes on his third missionary journey. He begins to proclaim the gospel to the people in Ephesus. In particular, he starts with 12 disciples of John the Baptist. And he explains Christ and the gospel to them, and they believe. And they are baptized. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. And a church is born in Ephesus. It's a church that knows such rich um, blessing from God. Over the next four decades, really up until the time that this letter was written, Revelation was written, the church of Ephesus enjoyed such rich blessing. Uh, Just think about it. The Apostle Paul was its founding pastor. That's pretty good. And the Apostle Paul had such a profound ministry through the gospel in that city that the, uh, the sales of idols... It just plummeted, so much so that the the people who sold the idols, they caused a riot. They were so angry that they were losing their money because the gospel was changing so many lives. And then Timothy, Paul's protege, he comes along and then he serves as pastor. And he's a faithful pastor. Then church history tells us later on that the apostle John also comes to the church of Ephesus and he's a part of the ministry of that church as well. And so even after several decades of existence, the church of Ephesus is still doing a lot of good things. They're doing a lot of good works. And and that's what we see. We see this in verses two and three, really verse six as well. When the Lord Jesus commends this church for all the ways that they are serving him faithfully. Look again at your copy of God's word at verses two and three and then verse six. Jesus says, I know your works your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be liars. I know that you have persevered and endured hardship for the sake of my name, and you have not grown weary. And then move down to verse 6. You see him commend them in another way. He says, yet you do have this. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So in the first part of verse 2, the Lord Jesus says, I I know your works. And then in the second part of verse 2 and verse 3, indeed in verse 6 as well, he really kind of lays out for us what these works are. And there are really four main works that the Lord Jesus points to here. First, he commends them for their hard work. He, He talks about their labor. He says, I know your labor. The word labor there, it speaks of work that leads to exhaustion. So it's not just that they were working. They were working hard. They were doing a lot for the Lord Jesus. They were serving intensely. They gave themselves tirelessly to the ministry for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. That's a good thing. Uh, It's a good thing. Why? Because the Lord Jesus is worthy of our best efforts. He is a king. He's worthy of our very best efforts to serve him and honor him. It's a good thing when his people work hard for him. And so as I thought about that this week, I thought about our own church, and I was encouraged. Uh, Because just as they were working hard, I see so many ways in which we, by God's grace, are working hard. Many of you, more and more, it seems like, are involved in practical ministry. Just kind of, not only on Sunday morning, but throughout the week, just working hard for the Lord Jesus. So you'll show up early, and you'll help set up, and you'll stay late, and you'll help tear down after the service. And you use your spiritual gifts in, in teaching and in music. And you're investing in our children. You're helping them understand the gospel. Uh, you're counseling one another from God's word. That's, a, that's something that's growing in our church and something I pray will continue to grow in our church. You're opening your home for the sake of hospitality. I hear about this all the time, people opening their homes, having people over, talking with them about life, pointing them towards Jesus. You're opening your heart to the homeless and the underprivileged in our community. Uh, you're sharing the gospel with lost friends and family members and coworkers. All of these things are good works, and praise God for it. 
Praise God that he is at work in our church in these ways. He's honored by the labor, so let's keep it up. Let's pursue this. This is a, a good thing. But, you know, second, the Lord Jesus commends his church in Ephesus for their endurance. That's what he says next, your endurance. That word translated endurance, it speaks of patience in the midst of difficult circumstances. It's, it's, a, it's a refusal to quit. It's I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep persevering. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing even though it's hard. And there were a lot of hardships. So this is a church that is surrounded by a pagan, idolatrous, and immoral culture that is just constantly kind of pulling at it to compromise, constantly pulling at it to turn away from Jesus and come back to what, what they used to be involved in, what used to be a normal life for them. And of course, they were probably mocked for following Jesus in a city that was utterly committed to Artemis. Why are you following Jesus? Don't you know we have the temple of Diana here? And we see at the end of verse 2, though, that probably most of the suffering came from the fact that this is a church which over and over had men come to it claiming to be Christians, claiming to be apostles, and trying to insert themselves into the life of the church. And so they suffered a lot from combating false teachers who tried to infiltrate the church. But the church of Ephesus endured. And they endured so much so that in verse 3, the Lord Jesus kind of raises this issue again and just kind of heightens the commendation, I think. He says, I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name and have not grown weary. And brothers and sisters, isn't it possible to grow weary? Isn't it possible? Don't you sometimes just want to slow down in serving Jesus? Yeah, so, but by God's grace, this church did not slow down. They did not grow weary. Third, the Lord Jesus commends the Ephesians for their hatred of evil. He says, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. Uh, evil people there, it actually speaks of people who are worthless, bad, worthless is the idea. And it refers in the context of verse 2, most especially to those, those men who were coming to the church and claiming to be apostles, but really they weren't apostles. And at the end of verse 2, we see that the church of Ephesus had discernment in order to say, no, no, you're a fraud. But of course, in verse 6, now look down in verse 6, you see that evil people also included a group called the Nicolaitans. Now, we know very little about the group uh, that's called Nicolaitans. We're not sure much uh, about who led them or what it is that they taught exactly. But it is interesting to notice that they're included both in the letter to Ephesus and also in the letter to Pergamum. And in the letter to Pergamum, they are, they're really tightly tied to a group uh, that was associated with the teaching of Balaam, and that teaching involved idolatry and sexual immorality. And so it's very likely in a city like Ephesus, the Nicolaitans were encouraging the same kind of licentiousness, the same kind of compromise with culture, the same kind of immorality and idolatry. But the Ephesians resisted their false teaching, and the Lord commended them for it, for resisting and rejecting those who are evil. And that gave me some pause this week as I thought about our own culture, because we live in a dark culture. In many, many ways. Look at the way the Lord Jesus commended the Ephesians for hating evil and for rejecting, putting out of their lives, those who promoted sexual immorality. I wonder what the Lord Jesus would say to us as we live in the 21st century. What would he say about our culture's love for movie stars and pop stars and professional singers who actively promote the very sins that nailed Jesus to the cross? The very same sins. What would he say? What would he say about the fact that many professing Christians fill their minds with the films and the music that are just soaked in those sins? 
What would he say about the fact that many of our young people sing along to music that we would never let them listen to if the Lord Jesus was physically present? What would he say? Well, brothers and sisters, he's been clear. Verse 6 tells us that he, that he hates it. He hates it. And that it's a good thing to reject it. That should give us pause. Right? It teaches us that we should reject evil people. That includes evil people that flash across our TV screens and our iPhones. And you may wonder why I bring this up so much. I bring this up so much because just even in my own life, I just, I just I want the church to be holy. And I think this is one of the main ways that Satan is just poisoning believers. We have been discipled to think that we have to watch the latest movie because if I don't watch the latest movie, I'm going to be weird. And I'm saying, let's be weird. Or let's find ways to cut out the content that's garbage. And let's protect our children. It's not the words. The words aren't the most dangerous thing for our children. It's the philosophy. It's the utterly godless, pagan, Christ-hating philosophy that says, live for yourself and live for this world and have as much pleasure as you can now. And the Lord Jesus says he hates it. At the end of verse 2, the Lord Jesus commends the Ephesians for their spiritual discernment. He says, you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. Tragically, I think we have to say there's a, a fundamental lack of discernment in much of what we would call evangelicalism. And it looks like this. It looks like people that are more than happy to watch False teachers, teachers like Joel Osteen and T.D. Jakes and Steve Furtick, and they love what they have to say, but then these same individuals will listen to faithful teachers like John Piper and like Kevin DeYoung and H.B. Charles, and they will love what they have to say. And you ask the question, how can they do that? And it's because they don't have discernment, you see. They don't know the difference between truth and error. They don't know their Bibles, and so as long as a person sounds Christian-y, as long as a person sounds like he's someone that's religious, they're more than happy to listen to what they have to say, even though the teaching is heretical. But notice it wasn't that way in the church of Ephesus. Uh, notice that they were discerning, right? They tested those who claimed to be apostles. Really? You're an apostle? Okay. Let's look at what God's word has to say about that, and let's look at your life. They tested them, and they found them to be false. They found them to be frauds, and so they rejected them. And the Lord Jesus praises them. Why? Because they had spiritual discernment. And we, brothers and sisters, we need to be discerning as well. We need to know our Bibles. Uh, we need to know the truth so that we can spot falsehood. Not all is gold that glitters. Not everyone that claims to be a Christian is a Christian. Not everyone that presents himself as a pastor or herself as a faithful Bible teacher is one. There are false teachers everywhere in our day. And here's the thing, they're charming. They're attractive. They're charismatic. They ask wonderful, thought-provoking, open-ended questions that never really take you to the Bible but subtly kind of take you away from the Bible to their own philosophy. They say a lot of nice, Christian-y-sounding things when they preach, but for all that, they're false. They're liars. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. How can we recognize them? The Bible tells us. The Lord Jesus tells us. He says you'll recognize, you'll recognize them by their fruit. The produce of their lives will not match the gospel. So the Bible tells us that, that false teachers, are, they're, they're noted for greed, 
Uh, they're noted for sexual morality, uh, and they're noted for kind of an arrogant desire for power and centralizing power. And so when you see those things in a person's life, you need to be on guard. You need to be testing what they're saying. You need to be thinking about whether or not this person may be a wolf in sheep's clothing. But of course, false teachers are also recognized by false teaching. But we need to be careful here because this is where it gets so incredibly subtle because the mastermind behind the false teaching is ultimately Satan, and he is much smarter than any of us here. You may be the smartest person in the room. Satan is 20,000 times smarter than you are, and his teaching is subtle. In fact, in our day, it is easier to spot a false teacher based on what they do not say than on what they do say. Because there's teacher after teacher after teacher that will tell you nice things about God and nice things about heaven and nice things about love, but they'll never mention sin, and they'll never talk about wrath, and they'll never talk about judgment, and they'll never talk about the need of repentance. They don't talk about those things. They just talk about the nice things. And you see, that's false. It's not the true gospel. So look at this church in Ephesus, right? The Lord Jesus commends them for so many things, for their hard work, for their endurance, for their hatred of evil, and for their spiritual discernment. In so many ways, it seems like this church is a healthy, vibrant, faithful church is what it seems like. But then the Lord Jesus, he turns in verse 4 and 5, and he lets us know that there's a massive problem in this church. There's a spiritual cancer at work in the life of this church, and this church is being killed by it. And that brings us to the second point, the Lord's correction. Look with me first, if you will, at verse 4. He says, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. So here in verse 2 and 3, the Lord Jesus, he commends them for their faithfulness, but now he turns to confront them for their failure, for their faithlessness. It's a massive failure. He says, you have abandoned the love you had at first. The word translated love there, it's a familiar Greek word, agape. This is, this is the New Testament word for God's love. It is a self-giving, others-oriented, others-focused love. It serves others. Uh, and this agape love was to be the defining characteristic of those who follow Jesus. Adam Messer read that for us earlier from John 13, verse 35. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love, that's the word agape, if you love one another. Now, commentators debate exactly what, this, what does this mean. Does this mean that they had lost their first love for the Lord Jesus? Or does it mean that they had lost their first love for one another in the church? And I think the answer has to be both. Uh, that they had lost their first love for one another in the church and they had lost their first love for the Lord Jesus as well. Because you see, those things go together. Neil read that for us earlier from 1 John 4, how you can't say you love God if you don't love your brother or sister. It's not true. That love for God is a, it's a false love. You see, you can't separate love for God and, and love for your brothers and sisters. They go together. So it must have been both. This is a church that over time had grown cold in their affections for Christ, and they had grown cold in their affections for one another. So early days, they're passionate for God, they're fervent, they're working hard, they're enduring difficulty, hardship, persecution, not just because it's duty, but because they love Jesus and because he's worth it. And any cost, it doesn't matter what the cost is, Jesus is worth it, and they're passionate for him, and so they are loving one another and serving one another and blessing one another uh, but then, then over time, and here's the thing, it's always over time, something had changed. Now they're cold. They were hardworking, but now they're indifferent. They're doctrinally precise. You know, they have huge theological heads, 
but they have tiny, almost invisible hearts. Right? They're orthodox, but they're cold towards Christ and towards one another. How, how did it happen? Well, we can't be absolutely sure, but just kind of looking at what we see in this passage, it, it seems clear that this is a church that had endured a lot of hardships from people from the outside coming in, claiming to be true followers of Jesus, even apostles of Jesus, and they've had to struggle and fight against these false teachers. And it, it's very likely that what happened over time is there just became a growing suspicion in the congregation against other people. And hurts were multiplied, and everyone started to think the worst about others. And relationships were strained, and no one ever took the first step to reconcile. And you see, friends, someone has to take the first step. Either the person who is offended or the person who has been offended, someone has to take the first step to reconcile. But it's very likely that they had left off doing that. They had stopped loving one another, and of course, sin doesn't just stop with people, Harboring sin will steal our love for God. Why? Because if you are struggling in your relationship with brothers and sisters in the church, you're not going to want to spend time with Jesus. You're not going to want the light to shine on that relational struggle. So you're going to run away from Jesus. And that's what happens just over time. Here, this church that was so hardworking, so fervent, so doctrinally precise, it becomes cold. And it's a big deal. Yeah, losing our first love, it's not a small thing. It's actually the most devastating thing that can happen in the life of any church. It's a, it's a cancer that, that ultimately crushes the life of the church. It's a, a coldness that puts out the fire of our love for Christ and for one another. And that's why in verse 5, the Lord Jesus calls his church to repentance. Look at verse 5. He says, remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, there are are three kind of rapid-fire commands that the Lord Jesus gives him here. Remember then how far you have fallen. In other words, think. It's one of the first things we have to do. We have to think. Uh, We have to remember. We have to process. We have to assess ourselves. Think about what it used to be like, he's saying. Think about those early days when you're willing to suffer for one another and serve one another and bear with one another and forgive one another and spend time with one another and serve and promote the gospel. And But now you're cold and you're proud and you're divided against each other and you've abandoned your first love for each other and for me. And then he says, repent. That's the second command. Turn back. Turn away from that. Confess your sins against me. Confess your sins against one another. Turn away from your coldness. And then he says a third command, and do the works you did at first. He's saying, love and serve again. Love me again. Forgive your brother or sister for the way that they've sinned against you. Pursue a right relationship with them. Don't let the brokenness continue. Give yourself in delight to serve me and serve one another. That's what he's calling them to in terms of repentance. Do the first works again. And then, of course, he gives a solemn warning at the end of verse 5, doesn't he? He says, otherwise I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So even so, they had been so hardworking and so uh, theologically accurate and so persistent in serving God, the stakes were high. If they did not return to their first love, the Lord Jesus is saying, I will come to you and I'll remove your lampstand, which is to say, I will snuff out the life of this church. You will no longer be a light for the gospel And what does that look like? It looks like churches just falling apart. And brothers and sisters, just look around you. They're everywhere. They would no longer be a light for Jesus. It's a sobering word, isn't it? 
It should make us assess ourselves as a church. Have we grown cold? I, I thought about that question a lot this week. I prayed about that question a lot this week. Have we grown cold? And I think by God's grace, the answer I came to is, is no. I don't believe we've abandoned our first love. I, I still see uh, love for each other. I see that on Sunday mornings as we greet one another, as we pray with one another, as we open our home to one another. Uh, I see the way we serve when needs arise. I see acts of generosity that no one knows about, but that happen routinely in the life of this church. Uh, I see you talking about Jesus. I see you studying God's word. I see pointing, uh, pointing one another towards him. I see us as a church. I think we can rightly say there's an increasing desire that we would be promoting the gospel more and more, not only in our community, but among the nations. I look at all of that, and I think, well, by God's grace, after nine years, I believe we have not lost our first love. And yet, as a church, I do think we have to be vigilant because we're entirely capable of doing that. And surely it's true, surely it's true that there are ways when we're less fervent than maybe we were at the beginning. If we see those, we need to, we need to turn back. We need to repent. As, as a church, we need to be on guard against losing our first love. We need to keep our relationships with one another strong through humble acts of service. And listen, just a willingness to forgive. I'm just going to absorb the debt. You've done wrong to me, but Jesus paid for all my sins, and I'm going to just cover your sin against me and I'm going to love you. We need to do that. We need to encourage one another to know the Lord Jesus more and more deeply. I do think, though, perhaps the most important thing we need to consider today in this passage is that while it applies most directly to a local church, it also speaks to us as individual believers. After all, local church is made up of individual members. And so the quality of my walk with Christ matters not only for me. It matters for you. The quality of your spiritual life, your love for Jesus, doesn't just matter for you. It matters for your brothers and sisters sitting around you. And so we should assess our own hearts. How are we doing in our love for Jesus and our love for others? I think, I think all of us, if we were honest, we could say, okay, I see ways in which I'm not as fervent as I used to be here and here and here. And, and perhaps there are some relationships in the church that need to be mended and perhaps you've left off in secret prayer. I mean, you're just going off with the Lord and just praying and spending time with Him in prayer. Prayer always seems to be the first thing that goes when we're starting to get cold. Or perhaps it's been a long time since you've opened up God's Word and just, just let the Lord talk to you by His Spirit as you've studied His Word. Or perhaps if you're honest, you know very well that your heart has grown cold. And you're just going through the motions right now because good people go to church on Sunday and it's a habit. Well, friends, what should we do? Look at verse 5. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Again, think. Think. Pray for God to give you grace to assess your own heart in this area. Look for ways that you've grown cold. And then repent. Turn away from those things. And then do the works you did at first. You see, we don't live long. It feels like we live a long time. 70, if by reason of strength, 80 years. Uh, we're going to live with the Lord Jesus in a land marked by perfect joy, perfect work, and perfect rest forever and ever. Jesus says, do the first works, which means, brothers and sisters, we need to run through the tape. We never get to kind of taper off in the Christian life and think, well, I've done enough for the Lord. We'll never do enough for the Lord. No, we need to keep on keeping on. We need to continue to be faithful in service to him. So this is a word that tells us to turn from our coldness towards our brother who's offended us. It's to seek forgiveness for ways that we've sinned against others, that the love we have for one another might be strong. 
It's a command to pursue the Lord Jesus again in every way the Bible commands us to, and that's with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Listen to how Charles Spurgeon spoke about the need we have to uh, pursue the Lord in this way, to repent, to turn back. Speaking to his students at the pastor's college, he says, If any of us have come down from the heights, it is time that we return to them again. If we have fallen from our first love, it is most needful that we should at once renew the ardor of our youth. If we have gone down even in a small degree, it behooves us to ask for help to get back what we have lost. This is necessary on account of our own happiness, for I appeal to any of the brother who, who, brother who declines in heart and groans weak in faith and doubtful in spirit whether he is not unhappy. Do you not derive the purest joy and most solid satisfaction from walking with God? Indeed, those who are called to be saints are doomed to be unhappy apart from Christ. It is a doom which destiny has fixed upon you that if you depart from Christ, you must depart into hell. For it is hell for you to depart from Christ. If therefore in any measure you have roamed away from Christ, mind that you fly home again to him at once. And he's using strong language, but he's saying this most especially, no one is more miserable than a worldly Christian. No one is more miserable than a cold Christian because you see you're too Christian for the world and you're too worldly for the church. And you must be by yourself. And it doesn't satisfy in the way that Satan says it satisfies. So you see the Lord, he corrects this church for their loss of love and he calls them to repentance. There's a third point, the Lord's promise. Verse 7, let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The, the words that begin this verse, let anyone who has ears to hear listen. It must have been sweet for the Apostle John to hear this, because this is what the Lord Jesus said over and over in his teaching ministry. If anyone has ears to hear, hear. It, it must have really been sweet for him. And of course, the Lord Jesus is saying, pay attention. Pay attention to what I'm saying here. He says, to what the Spirit says to the churches. That reminds us that the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit are one. There's only one God. You see, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. There is one God in the mystery of the Trinity. But the promise is given to us at verse 7. Again, the last part of verse 7. Look there again. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, in the context of this letter to the Ephesians, the one who conquers or the one who overcomes or the one who is victorious, various translations translate the word differently. This is the one who perseveres in his or her love for Jesus, most especially. But we will see this over and over to the one who conquers, to the one who conquers, to the one who conquers, because most fundamentally, the one who conquers is the true Christian. It's the one who perseveres in the Christian life. It's the one who doesn't turn back to the world, but instead perseveres and pushes on all the way into the kingdom. He or she never falls away from his or her faith in Jesus. And what will the one who conquers receive? He says, access to the tree of life and the paradise of God, which is a beautiful picture, a beautiful imagery of saying that what we will get for serving the Lord for conquering in Christ is access to all the glories of heaven, a new heaven and a new earth in the very presence of God among the people of God for endless ages in a world that is paradise, in a world that is perfect, in a world where Christ is all in all and all of it is grace. So here's, here's a question. How does someone conquer? How does someone become a conqueror 
one who enjoy the glories of heaven. And again, it's grace. And it takes us to the gospel because you see, by nature, none of us are conquerors. By nature, all of us are those who have been conquered. You see, we were born sinful and separated from God. There was nothing, with, there was nothing within us uh, that wanted to live for him and pursue him. But by nature, no sin, what it does is it turns us in on ourselves. So we want to live for ourselves. And we were all born sinful and separated from God. And so instead of listening to him, instead of loving him, instead of following his commands, we have pursued our own ways. Everyone here and everyone in the world has done precisely the same things in countless different forms, in countless different ways. We have managed to live for ourselves instead of loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Some of us just wanted God to leave us alone so we could do what we wanted to do. We didn't even want to think about him. We just wanted to take all of the good gifts that he's given us and we wanted to use it for ourselves to make ourselves as happy as possible for as long as possible. And friend, all I can say to that is that that is a dying life because you can't keep anything you acquire in this world. It will be taken from you. And the Bible says that sin is serious, that it separates us from God. It brings us under his judgment. So if we die in our sins and we stand before him and we say, I tried my best, the Bible says you've already failed the test. You see, none of us are conquerors in and of ourselves. None of us were able to overcome. We were all conquered by sin. But you see, Jesus is the conqueror. And that's the message of the Bible. The Lord Jesus is the one who came into this world to overcome where we have failed to overcome. Uh, the sinless, eternal Son of God comes into this world as a man, Jesus Christ. He lives a perfect life where he always obeys the will of his heavenly Father. He always loves this agape love. It's always perfect. Everyone he meets, and then when the moment is right, he lays down his life on a cross as a sacrifice in the place of sinners like you and me. He dies under the wrath of God, bearing in himself the wrath of God against all the sins of those who never turn from their sins and trust in him. He dies, but then he rises from the dead, showing that God had accepted his perfect sacrifice. And in that great act, in that great sacrifice, through death, Jesus conquered. He overcame sin and death and Satan and hell. And praise God, he didn't do it for himself. He did it for us. And the way to be a conqueror is to turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. You see, it's a free gift. Christianity is not about what you can bring to the table for God. Christianity about, is about what God has done in laying a perfect table for you in Christ and saying, come and eat and drink and be filled. Stop living your dying life. Trust in Christ and know eternal life even now. And it is a matter of putting your trust in Christ and what Christ alone has done. And all who do that, well, they are in Christ, right? God looks at them as if they lived Jesus' perfect life, and his victory becomes their victory. We become conquerors in him, and his spirit is working in us so that we will never fall away, so that we will never turn away, but instead we will persevere on and on until the day when we see Jesus face to face. And that is, that is the Christian hope, friend. That's the fundamental message of Christianity. If you're just checking Christianity out, the fundamental message is Jesus Christ, conqueror and king who offers eternal life to you this morning if you will receive it. And we pray that you will. We pray that you'll trust in him even now and know life in him. 
Church history tells us that this letter to the Ephesians may have led to their repentance, at least for a time. It was interesting, I learned this week, that the church father Ignatius, he wrote a letter to the church in the early 2nd century, so this is after John's time, and he just highlights the manifestations of love in this church. But the Reformation did not last. Ultimately, the church in Ephesus died out. We don't know precisely when. But as far as I know, even till today, there is no church in Ephesus. Still, this letter is a lasting reminder to us that God cares. The Lord Jesus cares for his churches. And in particular, he cares that we would not lose our first love, but that we would remain white hot, uh, that we would remain passionate for him and for each other, loving and forgiving and serving. And may God help us do that this week. And let's pray.